מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש Welcome to another edition of Partial Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malaman in Highland Park, New Jersey at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shemet. Joining me is the getting beardier Rabbi Barry Chesler. Lagover is coming. Okay. And he's still with the same beard, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky on Shechatz in New York. It's great to see you all. We have a double Parsha this week, two Parshas, Akhremot and Kiddoshim. I have to say, these are amazing Parshas. They're just amazing Parshas. Because every week they're amazing Parshas. And we have the privilege of studying them with you. And so let's get right into it. Akhremot. You know, I want to start off with this idea that, that the Torah is locating us in time. And, and so it, I can't help, in light of you know, the kinds of thinking that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, especially after the catastrophe, that there's something going on here, that there's a story going on here, that in a way, Moshe and Aaron, they may have had a falling out. I'm, I, am I reading too much into this story? Or, or you know, do, do you want to kind of... Okay, what I would say, Elliot, is that the Torah has 70 faces, and your reading is certainly one of the 70 faces. I give myself a face. <laughs> yeah, so what's... Important here to recognize is that we can read the, these first few verses as an explanation of what happened to Nadav and Abihu, that they entered the Kodesh HaKodeshim at the wrong time, since that's the commandment that is going to come here. But the other thing that occurs to me when you were talking about the family drama is that the death of Nadav and Abihu was not just a personal catastrophe, it was a national catastrophe. Sure. And what has to, the sin that has to be atoned for is not just the sin that we speculate about Nadav and Avihu, but the sin of the community for having Nadav and Avihu in their midst and then suddenly taken from them. And so I, I guess, you know, that obviously spreads, certainly their death spreads a, a kind of, the, the, the av, av, into, in, the, in the sanctuary, the, the, the height of, you know, Tumah, uh, uh, desolation in, in the sanctuary uh, and that has to be purged also and that has to and the, the sanctuary needs to be re-cleansed from this but uh, Jeremy have a take on, on this well I mean there, I think that there's a um, you know two, two or three weeks ago when we were discussing this you you espoused Elliot the, a strong reading of the uh, enormous import of following the rules and not improvising and you know stressing the uh the the precision that the that the priestly you know Torah Kohanim, the priestly style of worship demands and neither of who you know they they uh, obviously at one level or another deviated uh, however we want to interpret it and so the sort of a classical way of reading of this is guys this is hugely hugely important and don't screw around with it. Um, and so, you know, treat 
this this um, this ritual like it's nuclear because it is nuclear. I, I I love the way you kind of humanize this story and not just make it a kind of a, a preachy polemic about about the performance of the duty. Um, you you located it in the story of the relationship of of Moses and Aaron. I think that's great. I think so. I think God is trying to nudge them together here. I think given the fact that there was such a rupture in the relationship and that uh, I think that that residue lingers on. Look, we, we see it all the time in, in family relationships where, you know, bad things, hard things, harsh things are stated between one or another parties in the family. And, and these things go on. They don't go away so easily. They, they stay. So on. It's interesting, Elliot, is that some families have the tendency to paper over those Indeed. disagreements. And, you know, now that you raise the issue, if we want to go through the Torah, we can find lots of places where Moses and Aaron butt heads. Indeed. And okay. So let's resolve that always. Yeah. And, you know, there's that tension that lurks beneath the surface and that the Torah itself doesn't quite know what to do with. It doesn't write it out entirely, but it also doesn't explain what's clearly a problem. I think there's a subtext here. Okay, so the, but the, the, the text itself will, goes into atonement, the rituals of atonement. Uh, and, and what happens in the ritual of atonement, just briefly, sacrifices. And, and you might recall, you'll recall from, from the Avoda service at Yom Kippur, this is the, the passage that is read. And of course, it's a, elaborated in the Mishnah and embellished by the Mahsor. You know the, the goats, two goats, one that goes to live, who goes as a sacrifice, one that gets a, a crimson cord. It's not in the in the Torah here with the crimson, but but you you put a thread, a crimson thread around the 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 the, the, uh, the goats, and you you send it off with a slow moving guy, and basically it's 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 out in the wilderness, and and this is where Aaron places both his hands on the on the goat's head and the sins are possessed by the goat, the goat goes. And then we get the culminating verse. You, who would like to, who would like to read the culminating verse? Barry, you want to get that for us? Because it came as a question. Okay. Um, 30. Right. I just, uh, yeah. So, at this day, you will atone and purify, your, and you will be purified from all the sins before God. You shall become purified. I can't hear that without chazanis, okay? I know, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> With real kvetching, real, real stuff. In <laughs> Bowing, everything. So, okay, so what is kapara? What is atonement? What's this came out to us as a question from one of our loyal viewer listeners. <laughs> right? So why don't you give the first answer? I think, look, atonement, it's all about the, the, the sense that the, the sanctuary has been polluted. Your sins pollute the sanctuary. And, and what, what Yom Kippur does is offer us, enables us the chance to wipe the slate clean. That is... You were originally wiping the slate of the sanctuary, the literally, you know, doing the spiritual cleansing. Of course, it, it uh, evolved to the spiritual and emotional and moral cleansing of every individual. The sense that 
you now have access. I think that that's kapara. The, um, you know, in, in, uh, in the, the massive, massive, massive commentary on Leviticus written by Professor Jacob Milgram, um, you know, he, he defines chatat, the kind of sacrifice, not as a sin offering, but as a purification offering. Yeah. And, and lehit, lehit chatat can, is, is to purify. So um, it's, not, it's not really that you've, it, it may be that you've done a sin. The sin may be the source of, of the impurity, but the point of a, a chatat, which... The different kinds of, you know, we, we talked about it as, as Baker began, the different kinds of sacrifices and the different kinds of things that are done with different kinds of chata'ot. Uh, the, sometimes the blood may be placed on the incense altar, which is sort of within the mishkan, and sometimes the blood may be post, kind of smeared on the, uh, on the, the mizbacha olah, the, the offering, the altar where the animals are sacrificed. But in either case, something has happened and, and in this religion, in its ancient form, there was a kind of blood atonement and an animal blood was smeared and spritzed in pres pres prescribed places. And that was seen to, to counteract like the accumulated impurity. And I, you know, what I think is really the, the deep part of this, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. There may be you know, obviously, Vayikra has a very well-developed sense of which kinds of substances and which kinds of, of animals and which kinds of behaviors create a, a ritual impurity. And if you if you were bearing one of those, if you touched this or that substance, you know, or you've come in contact with a dead body or dead animal body or whatever it is, and then you go to the mikdash, then you go to the sanctuary, you have brought that that you know miasma of impurity with you. Right. Um, but what gets really interesting in Vaikra, and, and the, you know, the, the sort of academic scholars will, will kind of e extract um, one voice from another in, in Vaikra is that sometimes they really seems to be focused on uh, that particular ritual impurity that, that accumulates in the sacred space. And sometimes it seems to be focused much more on what I at least, what I think we in a modern time think about the accumulated sin it's not just that you touched a lizard and went into the temple. It's that you lied and you stole and you and you abused and you took advantage of people. And that too is seen to accumulate as if it were like a, a grime or a dust um, in the sacred place. And that's really religiously meaningful. Like the bad stuff that we do, it it it's meaningful. It sticks with us and we got to do something to counteract it. You said before, you know, that the sanctuary is not detached from, from life, you know. The messiness of life gets to intrude from time to time in the sanctuary. The sanctuary is not this, you know, the Holy of Holies is, is a place that's not accessible to, to most, to, to everyone except for the Kohen Gadol. But, but the temple was, was a place where everybody came. You know, you can't, you can't have a temple without people. You can't have a religion without people. And when people come, you know, mixed dancing is going to go out. I don't know. <laughs> I want to make another point here. And that is that the, the comment, the question was based on the distinction the rabbis make between the sins against other people yes. and the sins against God. And God will only forgive us if we first made our peace with our fellow human beings. And I think that strikes us as both reasonable and religiously meaningful. But I sometimes wonder if we don't lose sight that the purpose of making peace with our fellow is not for the sake of making peace with our fellow, but because what we really need is to be right with God. 
and Yom Kippur really is to focus our souls and our spiritual yearnings on our own relationship with God, that that is of ultimate importance. And just like we deny ourselves food and drink so we can concentrate more fully, we also have to take care of those sins against other people so that we can really concentrate on our relationship with God because we don't want those things to be gnawing at us when we have to address the Kodesh Baruch Hu on Yom Kippur. So I think that that theme of closest to God is going gonna, is gonna to be really important to us in, in the second Parsha we, uh, of this week, Kedoshim, and we'll, we'll get to that in two seconds because we, before that we have a rather you know, lengthy description of the permitted and prohibited, or more, 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 more like the prohibited sexual relationships. I mean, that starts with a preamble, don't, don't be like Egyptians, and don't be like Canaanites, you know, and, and um, but you have to do what, what, do my rules, keep my regulations, uh, and then, uh, do my rules and live by them, live and not die by them. Uh, and the idea is that that we are we are creating um, a sense of our lives, our intimate lives in holiness, uh, in contradistinction to the way that the Egyptians and the Canaanites live, where everything kind of goes. So this is a comment on pop music from the 1980s. Don't walk like an Egyptian. Don't walk like an Egyptian. Exactly. Remember that song? Walk like an Egyptian. Yeah, I remember. Bangles. So, so <laughs> don't don't do it though. Don't walk like an Egyptian. Don't walk. Uh, don't be like them. In a in a way, you know the, the the idea that Israel is to have a distinctive behavioral life and a distinctive sexual life and a distinctive family life. Uh, is is what Vayikra is trying to chart out for us. It's trying to chart out for us the sense that that family means a, a set of relationships that that are inviolable in terms of in terms of sexuality. No, I, I think that um, when when people are not positively disposed to, towards religion, um, you know, nowadays when when people think. You know the religion does you know all kinds of this that and the other harm and it and it uh, I, I think one of the things that they think about is ah, religion is always is always judgmentally looking down and and prying into people's bedrooms and and you know with with a really mean spirited way wants to control sexuality religion is really scared of sexuality and um, you know, and, and is, is kind of a, in this obsessively not very human way or not very humane way, there's all kinds of, all kinds of rules and disapproving and shame inducing. And I don't think that that's right. Um, I think that actually these rules, obviously in the world that we live in, there is a huge and valuable critique of uh, the classical Judaism's very negative attitude towards, certainly towards male homosexuality and somewhat less, um, uh, you know, some, somewhat reduced level to female homosexuality. And so these, those things come up to us and, and I think people are like, yeah, I don't want to talk about this. This is, this is not something that I want to come to synagogue about or think this thing is religiously meaningful. Um, it's, it's, it's oppressive rather than ennobling. 
I don't, so let's just bracket for a moment, if we can, the, the questions about same-sex relationships and same-sex behaviors, because I, I do think that that is an important uh, critique and a challenge. And I think that uh, promoting uh, rules about sexuality which restrain abuse, which nurture um, uh, relationships of care, I think is hugely important. Um, you know, I, I had, there's a woman in my shul who, um, she's doing something a little bit different now, but for a long time she worked with trafficked women. And she said that when people sent from Asia or Latin America to the United States to work as prostitutes, um, she would ask them, and, and if they denied that they had been sexually abused by a family member, she didn't believe them because it was so pervasive. Yeah. Um, and and so I feel like rules that in, the, in which the Torah, speaking in the name of God, stands up and says, this is not a, an appropriate relationship among blood relatives or, or marital rel relatives. Uh, I think that's good. I think that that's, that's really well, important. But I would go, I would go uh, perhaps a step further. I think what the Torah is really concentrating on is relationships. For a lot of us, um, at various times of our life, sex is about physical feeling and not about a relationship. And what we have, what the Torah cautions us is that sex has to be part of a relationship. And the reason why we don't allow these things, you know, they're not talking about people who are having relationships with these close relatives. They're talking about people having sex. And a lot of times that sex is, is one way. Right? The person is interested in their own pleasure and not the other person's. Yes. So here, basically, you know, the Torah is, is creating a structure around, around the intimate life and, and by prohibiting relationships that primarily exist within the family or the clan unit. Um, it's saying, basically, here, this is how a holy nation uh, behaves. This nation has to maintain its, the, the, its propriety in, in its intimate relationships. Because, because I, I, think that, I think that it is, first of all, I, I agree with everything you guys said. It is about a kind of a natural history of relationships. If you are somebody's parent, you cannot be their parent if you are also their sexual partner, yeah. right? If, if you are somebody's sibling, that is a certain kind of relationship. It's healthy, it's really important in life, and it's damaged if you are also their sexual partner. So I, I think that this, I think there is much, much wisdom in these in these prohibitions, and I really hope that people don't just sort of write them off and say, ah, it's the uptight, you know, it's the, it's the uptight, judgy, nasty, um, uh, uh, you know, religious authorities telling people how to behave. I think that that's, that's not correct. No, and in truth, you know, in our communities, and, and, and we all have examples of it, uh, you know, this damage is, is lifelong. This damage uh, continues beyond one generation. We see it, you know, within the Jewish community, we see it beyond. Um, and so there, there's what to be said here, you know, for, for uh, this, the, these rules uh, and the laws that are, that are stated here. Um, and then, of course, the Torah then moves into Kedoshim. We get into our second parsha. You know, we, we used to talk about be holy, be, be a blessing, be holy, choose life. This is be holy. This is the center of the Torah. Um, 
And we, we often, you know, take that word for granted, be holy. Uh, so I want to offer um, this interpretation. This comes from Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz, uh, who said that holiness is about relationship, basically proximity to God, that you are being close to God in, uh, in being holy. Uh, and that when the verse says, Kedoshim to you, ki kadosh ani Adonai Eloheichem, be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. It's really a way of saying, come close to me, because I want to come close to you. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, that might be uh, nice, nice poetics. It might be uh, one face of the 70 faces of Torah. Of course, there are other reasons, other meanings of holiness. You know, uh, I would uh, I invite you to offer us uh, any other or, any, or concur with this definition of holiness. Jeremy, we'll start with you. I would say that um, that the holy, it's really, I find it, I, I you know, I, I find it um, a little hard to give a, a, a sort of a expository definition of this word. Yeah. Um, it is a feeling and it's very, if somebody practices Judaism, um, I think that they get a sense that certain times, certain places, certain objects are holy beyond simply being what we would consider good. You know, um, I do not want to say in religion that that ethics um, is the sum total of what is really important, right? I, I think that lots of people and lots of cultures and people come from different cultures, they can all be good and they can have ethics. I do not think that certainly it's obvious the Jews are not the only um, you know, ethical people in the world, and people can do all kinds of good things, and and also be unholy. Um, you know, there's a thing going on in, in Israel right now with a with an ultra orthodox guy who I actually met many years ago, who was a really interesting guy. He he um, he used to, as a younger man, he was like one of the rock throwers at people who violated Shabbat. He was a, he was he was such a fanatic. Then he went on to found the zakah, the people who pick up the the you know, pieces of human bodies after accidents and did so much good in the world. He really did an enormous amount of good in the world. And he also happened to have been a terrible sexual abuser, right? He so tried to commit suicide. He just tried to commit suicide. Yeah. So people can do good things and be unholy. I think that holiness is that sense that it is there, some thing, some object, some place, some moment is very, very special and is worthy of being in the presence of, of God. And, you know, kidoshin to you, ki kadoshani, you be holy for I am holy, means that something resembles God. There's some fundamental commonality. And when we say that Shabbat, or the Torah scroll, or Yom Kippur, or, or a, uh, you know, a, a certain kind of um, building or like a, the Beit HaMikdash or in a small way our synagogues is holy, we mean that it is worthy of being a connector to the divine. Very. So I'm reminded of my late teacher, Rabbi Byron Sherwin, who liked to talk about the paradoxes in Judaism. And one of the basic paradoxes is God as transcendent and as imminent. And I think most of us associate holiness with the transcendent. It's something that's beyond us. But there's also an imminent part of holiness, such as we experience on Shabbat, where we can taste the holiness of Shabbat or feel the holiness of Shabbat. But that also does not endure. 
So we're dissatisfied sometimes with the transcendent because it's too far away, but the imminent we can't hold forever. We have to learn how to let it go. And so we're struck with this balance between what we call in English, the secular and the holy, the whole and the kadosh. And you know, I was reminded when we started this part of the conversation, what does that expression mean when God says, I am holy? On one hand, of course, the way theologians think of God is he is completely separate. Rudolf Otto famously said the, the holy other. But that holy other invites us into his presence. And that is where holiness exists, where so, we are invited to be part of God's presence. You know, we, we can pick up on almost every verse in chapters 19 and 20, which has the, the, the title, The Holiness Code. But, but from what you said, Barry, just now, you know, the first verse of The Holiness Code is exactly, you know, Shabbat and parents. Of course, is an echo of the, the Ten Commandments, Commandments 4 and 5, um, uh, you know, 4 being Shabbat, 5 being your parents. But what you said, I think, resonates very deeply. Your holiness is to be found precisely in those uh, very imminent relationships, the family relationship, the honor and reverence to parents, and in Shabbat, which is the the indescribable sense of, of peace that one gets as you know in in in, a, in the moment of rest in the moment of of sanctity of of all the relationships um leviticus 19, all of leviticus 19 and 20 in the, in the way that you're saying you know is is so so central here because uh because it is such an important like expansion and addition uh, to the rest of Leviticus, which is, as we said, is about, you know, what, what we call tumat mikdash bekodashav, the, the, the impurity or the purification of the sacred space and all of its, all of its accoutrements. And then, and then Kiddoshim comes along here and says, and don't lie and don't steal and don't trip up the vulnerable and don't curse those who can't defend themselves and, um, and uh, do not falsify your weights and measures, be honest in business. And so with, with Parshat Kiddoshim, um, you know, we, we locate what is holy, uh, not only, this, this is not against the idea that the Mikdash is, is special. It's it actually, it, this, this section of the book does believe the Mikdash is really important, but it locates holiness in the community. And it says, you know, um, it says, uh, uh, speak to the, call Adad ben Israel, right? The entire community of the children of Israel is very expansive language has got a big crashing symbol of importance you know if you could if you could have a musical thing you'd hear the cymbals crash um, and say now this building's holy yes but you guys have to be holy as well in your behaviors with each other in your worshipful behaviors in your sexual behaviors in your ethical behaviors you want to craft this life um, such that it matches the holiness and I do want to add you know you you Elliot you said something very very on point earlier. In, in our conversation, when you when you mentioned our our fuzzy our fuzzy senior colleague here, it also says don't shave your beards. <laughs> so the three of us here, and I think let's let me let me find the pasuk here. Um, do not destroy your don't shave your head don't have a certain kind of haircut which is not supposed to be okay, and do not destroy 
the corners of your face, right? So you're supposed After to 19 your verse 26, seven. Yeah. Yes. And then it says, and then it goes on and says, uh, no tattoos. So if our, if our, if our readers are listening, if our, if our, if our audience is listening, no tattoos, please. No tattoos. Well, do we want to get into that? <laughs> it tattoos. It's like a taboo in, in Judaism. It's, it, uh, we have, we have, uh, lots of, um, feeling about that. Of course, you go to Israel today, and Israel is one of the most tattooed kind, which is, you know, like, uh, it's the irony of irony. And, you think, and, and of course, people, I, I do not think that anybody who gets a tattoo is consciously, like, you know, I don't, uh, you know, desecrating the memories of the millions of forced tattoos the Jews underwent in the last century, but I can't kind of not feel like they forced tattoos on us. I don't want tattoos but i know some people feel like they're they're sort of reclaiming the tattoos well, from it, it, it's it's that it's also the body it's the culture of the body and israel really is is um has given a body to the jewish people well, I, it's I a mediterranean country it. after all i'm sorry it's a mediterranean country after all yeah it's a, i mean they they just know how to live there i think right <laughs> look i always say uh and the tomatoes are fantastic <laughs> <laughs> the weather's pretty good too. The weather's pretty good. Listen, they're doing really well. And I mean, you can't beat the falafel. Exactly. Oh my God! In the shakshuka, yikes! <laughs> we 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 are talking about the land. Of course, you know that that's the holy land. Um, but uh, I go. Let's let's just dial back for a couple of verses. Um, the the Torah tells us that we should um, not hate our brother in our hearts. Right, reproach or you know, if you got a problem, talk about it. I, right. I was listening to Ilana Steinhain. She's a wonderful teacher, and she was saying that this passage here, beginning with do not be a talebearer among your people. She says the echoes of the Joseph story are in this passage. Fascinating. Mm, nice. Yeah. They should put that on, on in the U.S. Capitol. Okay, go ahead. And on all the stationery that Congress people and senators send out. Yeah, a just society, a society that, that really is committed to one another, really has to be careful about how it spreads its information about each other. I think that, you know, we, 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 we are so influenced. This is the great principle of the Torah. Of course, you know, in Hillel, what is hateful to you, do not do unto your neighbor. That's the Torah. The rest is commentary, go and learn. Of course, you know, we want to reduce the Torah to a single principle. This would be it. But this principle comes within a whole context. Right. And the context is not bearing a grudge or taking vengeance. Well, wait, the, wait that's, that's not, I mean, obviously that's, that's, the, that's the preceding clause. But the, it, you, this, this two verses has the four elements. Um, don't hate. Rebuke if you have to or talk out your problems. Don't bear a grudge, learn to love. I think that that is just, it's the most wonderful, most finely wrought on a literary level. It is beautiful and poetic um, on, on, on a religious level. Like this is, uh, a, and this is why this Parsha is so great. This is about shaping your personality. Because this is not like, don't eat pig is also a mitzvah. And, and you know, don't wear shatnez is also a mitzvah. I'm not saying that those are not important, but, these two verses 
appear to answer the question, like, what kind of human being are you going to be? You right. got to get rid of your heart. You got to get rid of the hate, hatred in your heart. You've got to deal with the inevitable conflicts that come up. Yeah. You're going to be honest about them, but you're not going to bear a grudge about them. And in that method, you're going to you're going to do not hate. Deal with your problems. Learn to love. Learn and to what's love, important but, here is that it's codified as law, because our natural inclination is to do otherwise. And we've all been in situations where we have done otherwise. And we had wonderful justifications for our correct behavior, which the Torah clearly says is wrong because the Torah standard is higher than our natural inclinations. So one of the things that Ilana Steinhain says in her, in her teaching and, and things that, that, that I've uh, done in the past with this is she, she, she translates Vahafta as loyalty. That it's, not, that it's impossible to have an emotional relationship with, with everyone um, indeed, it's probably impossible to have it with beyond the, the circle of the people that are closest to you, but you certainly can feel loyal. You can feel loyal to your kinsmen. And that loyalty is a driving shaper of, of your behavioral life, right? This is really interesting to me because loyalty is, is very high on my uh, uh, you know, hierarchy of values, I, I, virtues, I really feel strongly about loyalty. Um, and I think about loyalty given, you know, like the, the, the fact that the Minneapolis police chief testified against Derek Chauvin, yeah. um, when w one of the problems in this country is that, you know, the blue wall of science is, is in fact like loyalty on steroids, right? We are, we are colleagues, we are a team. And so I'm going to defend you even when you're wrong. And if, if you were to say to me, do you think that loyalty in your family, in your, in your clan, means you're sticking with somebody even when they're wrong. I would say, yeah, yeah, that's it. But I recognize that, that on steroids, that can be really destructive. So I, I think that the the be willing to rebuke the people that you love, be willing to to wrestle with the the wrong things that, that people do, even when you love them, is the sort of necessary corrective. So she makes exactly that point. She says that it... You, you, you rebuke the people that you love. You are, if you have a commitment to people, if you are loyal to people, you will, you will upbraid or you will reproach or you will, you will speak. So two things need to be said here. First of all is the use of the word reya is very important. Yeah. That is someone who is close to you, right? In other words, just one way to read it is you're supposed to make people as close to you as yourself and then you can love them. Yeah. But the other thing that we often forget is that later on in the same chapter is the commandment to love the stranger. Right. And that is in some ways more important than loving the neighbor as yourself because we have an inclination to love our neighbor. And as we see in the news, we also have inclinations to hate the stranger. Indeed, indeed. We don't want to leave it on, on hate, but we do have to Put the bow on this where we reached our, our time to the end the the, the parsha ends with with the notions of holiness of that we're we have a, a unique mission in the world we have a new position. so we could conclude with the third commandment to love which is in the torah yeah which comes in sefer devarim which is the hafta hacha. we're supposed to love god with all of our being and this by loving the neighbor as ourself and loving the stranger that we learn how to love god Indeed. What a great way to end this. That was awesome. What a, what a great we want to thank you all for watching and being with us for 
this this time. If you're doing the Shabbos cooking or whatever else you're doing, uh, we're, we're so happy to share this time with you. Yeah, my call. You want to say Shabbat Shalom? Shabbat Shalom. Next week, Shabbat Shalom.